millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello, Toasters. How are you? Welcome along to a brand new episode. On the show today, the fabulous Reverend Richard Coles. This was so, so gorgeous. I had so much fun in his company. Um, and I'm just really thrilled that you've uh, tuned in and you're going to listen to it and you're going to really enjoy it. It's very exciting. It goes all over the place, as usual. And obviously, there's some obligatory Wales chat. I had to crack on. I've got, to, I've got to let everyone know I'm from Wales. I don't know why I have to do that. Anyway, we had some Wales chat at the beginning, which goes a little bit like this. I've, I've sort of discovered Wales, you'll be glad to hear. It's good. It's good. Better late than never. Uh, I've started going a couple of years. Ago. So the bit I know is sort of that bit on the border, so Hay on Y, the Brecon Beacons, yeah. and then going into kind of Crick Howell and around yes, there. That's... Oh, it's so beautiful. That's my neck of the woods, Richard. Yeah, that's that's Monmouth is... Well, that's lovely. Well, yeah, it's lovely. So nice. I mean, a very good friend of mine, Horatio Clare, I don't know if you know Horatio, the writer. No. He, you know, he grew up in near Crickhall, Cumdy, and uh, he is the most wonderful writer. His first book was about growing up on a sheep farm high in the Black Mountains. Oh, really? It's a wonderful book. You should read it. Oh, I should. Give me that name again, because I'll forget. Horatio Clare. Oh, great. You can't really forget the name. No. I can. I'm quite bad at names. And the book, his first book, which is a memoir, is called Running for the Hills. Oh, great. But it's absolutely wonderful. Add it onto my TBR. Um, That's wonderful. Excellent. Excellent. And then we got on with the show. Hello, welcome along. It's my mate, Bottle Toaster. And I am utterly thrilled, utterly delighted to welcome one of my broadcasting heroes, uh, the very fabulous Reverend Richard Coles, who is here and... I, Richard, do you, do you know what? The, the best way I can think of to sum you up is you are a you're a tell themer, right? Now tell themer, tell themer, right? Here's what that means, and you get them every now and again. I've told probably five or six people I'm talking to you this morning. Every single one, every single one said, "Oh, you must tell him." Oh, you must tell him. People have this connection to you. People absolutely love you. And they, they oh. feel like they know you, Richard. Yeah, if only they knew. <laughs> this is what I'm hoping to do today. Can we find out well, the truth? I mean, it's funny. And I think it's because I've sort of been nudged towards national treasure or borderline national trinket, as David <laughs> used to call it, status. <laughs> and the thing is, once you're in that frame, you could... I mean, I sometimes think I could kind of burn down my own church and people go, oh, what a lovely blaze. You know, it's as if you can't do any wrong. And I just think people knew what I was really like. Yes. Um, I suppose that that disappointment will come. And then I'll never work again, live in the streets and die a lonely death in a warehouse. And there will never be a Coles backlash. It's impossible. I refuse to believe it's it's, it's possible. Um, even though we might find out some truths about you over the course of today, how, how was it? Now, I should say it's your fault you're on the show because you tweeted a while back about all the nonsense you've been buying on Amazon during lockdown. Did you have fun going back into your uh, Amazon history? Well, it was so interesting. It's like, you know, the truth about oneself is always a mystery, isn't it, to you and maybe not to others. Mm. But there it is, set out for you in, in unsparing detail and with pictures. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, I first, I, 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 I'm like a sort of one of the Flintstones when it begins, blundering across a keyboard, not really understanding what's going on. And by the time, it is the most unsparing index of my veniality. <laughs> it is in Amazon Veritas. This, yeah. is, this is how it is, exactly. Uh, and we can see this straight away if we go to uh, 2005, uh, Richard. Uh, you know, I, I didn't buy one of these as a Welshman, but that's the only reason I didn't buy it. It's the official Johnny Wilkinson calendar. You're a fan of his rugby, of course. Well, I am a fan of his rugby. Um, but when rugby comes wrapped in such such a charming package, mm. it's even more irresistible. And in 2005, <clears throat> I was living, um, I was a curate in far-off, um, Lincolnshire and um, I just really really well, do you know what actually that's what I was, I'd just come to the end of having spent two years in a monastery wow 
As you can imagine, there weren't that many people with Johnny Wilkinson calendars <laughs> up on the wall. But one of the most pleasant, we had an Australian monk there who I like very much, and he and I bunked off church one day to watch uh, the final of the Rugby World Cup when Johnny Wilkinson, do you remember, with that oh, drop yes. goal, secured victory for England. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, over Australia. Mm. And um, to, to watch that was wonderful, but to watch it with an Australian was even better. So I've always felt very strongly... Um, warm feelings towards Johnny Wilkinson. Also, he's incredibly handsome. He is beautiful. And, he is beautiful. And he's just a really charming man as well. Yeah. He's Buddhist, I think, which I always rather like. Oh, I, is I he? a Buddhist rugby player. Yeah. I see. Well, that would explain his metronomic kicking. He went somewhere else when he was kicking that ball. Didn't he? And that thing where he did that look with his hands together, almost in an attitude of prayer, yes. rather struck me. It reminded me of some sort of Renaissance paintings of saints. Yes. Is this where prayer and neuro-linguistic programming meet up? Is there? Do you think there's muscle memory when you put your hands together? I'm sure there is. I mean, most of my life is most of my life now is muscle memory and failing muscle memory <laughs> at 59. So, uh, but now sometimes I think muscle memory is all I've got. And I remember my father once absentmindedly spending a penny in his trouser press because there was something about being in front of the trouser press that triggered muscle memory in such a way as to lead to him micturating over his trousers. And I just really think that I'm on the threshold of that now myself. That's excellent. Always blame the muscle memory just yeah. whenever these things start to happen. But don't you find, I mean, I find this drive is that I'm, in, I'm not a very good driver and mm. I'm getting worse. So one of the things is that my body drives before my mind is fully engaged sometimes and there's a tricky crossroads near me and I, I've had to just really stop and look and think yeah. because otherwise I'm worried I'll just sail across without thinking. You don't, want to, you don't want to do a Prince Philip, that's what he did isn't it when he had his crash a couple of years ago, he just well, sailed over. Exactly, yeah. no I don't want to do that. But I, the thing with driving is as soon as you start to become conscious of the, because muscle memory, it, it, driving is the perfect example of muscle memory. But as soon as you become conscious of what you're doing, and I have this sometimes with the kids and the dog and my wife sitting next to me, I'm in the car and I'm in charge of all of their lives. And suddenly I get up in my head and think, you, you, the wheel, you need to make sure it's, you know what I mean? You just start to become so exactly conscious. Oh. I mean, anyone who plays an instrument knows what that like, because what, you know, once you get a sort of reasonably proficient an instrument, it is what you need to do is to be so proficient in muscle memory that you don't have to think about what you're doing and think and instead think about what you're playing what it sounds like yeah. and um my driving though i mean i'm a reasonably proficient keyboard player and i've learned the accordion now as well and i'm enjoying that but my driving just gets worse and worse Do you know i was um i was in, i was turning right onto the a509 which is always a sticky one for me and um and there was a bloke on a scooter and I didn't time it very well and I uh, had to break and he had to break and he did a big big wanker sign at me and then he saw my dog on it and he <laughs> pretended he was adjusting his visor <laughs> this is the way to avoid road rage incidents we all need to put dog collars on yes but I'm afraid that that is no guarantee <laughs> That the driving is going to be of a competency that does not invite scorn and contumely. He styled out a wanker sign to visor adjustment. Yeah. Can we? Can, let's just go back a sec. So, can can I just get an image in my head? Because I've now been distracted by the image of two monks together watching the rugby. Did were you in some sort of? Were you in a beer garden, or did you go scurl away somewhere? In, in no, some... we had a telly room, oh, which okay, um, okay. wasn't really. It was rather frowned upon, actually, but for f major sporting tournaments, yeah. uh, is indeed my vicarage is going to basically be a telly room for the month of June now as the football happens. Yes, of course. Oh. And, and what was the the flavour of of your monastery? What I, I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of. of oh well, it was it's the Anglican monastic, the Community of the Resurrection, which was founded by Bishop Gore right. uh, at the end of the 19th century. And, and it was to, it was to found a, a monastic but also a kind of missional community in the north of England, and it originally was to train working class men from it's in the West Riding, uh, from the industrial north to train for ministry in the Church of England. It had a hugely influential effect. I mean, you know, Trevor Huddleston is perhaps the most famous of its monks, who was a major figure. Archbishop Trevor Huddleston, a major figure in the anti-apartheid movement. And they were very active in South Africa and uh, were involved with Desmond Tutu and Steve Biko and lots of people. They were an inspiring bunch of monks. They were mostly Old Etonians, which was quite weird. Mm. And I can remember we had um, 
we had some visiting monks from the Brother Monastery in Germany in Trier, and they came along and to greet them, they sang as monks of and they sang the lovely plain song hymn, hymn the Hike Dies. And then the Murfield monks, the Murfield fathers, they were known. They had to think of a song to sing back, but the only one they could all remember was the Eton Boating Song. Oh, so they sang that, and the German monks thought it was a hymn, but it, but it wasn't. <laughs> that sounds like a sort of Boris Johnsonian diplomacy there. Just well, I mean, it's interesting. Eton is a um, you know, it's a, it's a it can work for good or ill, I think. And there was something about the Etonianism, Etonianism of the Murfield fathers, which directed towards beneficial ends, which was the fight against apartheid in South Africa. Mm. They were fantastic in that fight and really, really created a, a, an enduring legacy. What do you do in a monastery then? Is it, it's not just sitting there praying, because I've still got this sort of slightly simplistic, as with everything in my head, uh, vision of a kind of medieval just sitting in a church praying. What actually happens on a sort of day-to-day basis? Study, I suppose. Well, actually, no, you're pretty much right. Oh, right. It's okay. mostly praying. <laughs> right. Um, there's a thing called the divine office, which is the daily regime of prayer. And that's an, an, and people there are variations on it. But essentially, you start very early saying prayers. Mm. You end quite early saying prayers. And in between, you say a lot of prayers. Right. <laughs> so it's a sort of it's a it's a sort of factory of prayer, <laughs> interspersed with a bit of study and a bit of gardening and a bit of lavatory cleaning right. and all that kind of thing. Well, I absolutely loved it. What's that, what, so? What's in the prayers? Are they just? Is it your own personal prayers, or are you saying prayers about, on, on behalf of other people? You know, there's a chunk for that, but mostly it's it's a set form of prayer. So it's oh. basically it's based on the Psalms, which is the Book of Psalms in the Old Testament, which is actually the hymn book of the Second Jewish Temple in Jerusalem. Um, and that's the basis of it. So you go through the whole, there's 150 Psalms and you go through them all yeah. over time. And interspersed with readings and hymns and plain song. And my, I was the uh, presenter, which is the uh, one responsible for the singing. Mm. But I, was, I, I wasn't in the, 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 the monastery ran a training college and I was in the training college. So it was really a sort of paramonk rather than a full monk, if I can put it that way. Right, okay, cool. Well, now, now I know. Now I understand more. This is good. This is enlightening. I like this. I like this. All right, let's move on then from uh, a monastery to something bang opposite, I would say. Uh, this is 2008 now, uh, Richard, and you have bought season four of The Wire. Still, I think, possibly the greatest bit of TV ever. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love The Wire. I, I find it very hard to dethrone The Sopranos as my sort of favourite box set ever, although I watched it a bit of it a while ago, and I think it's not perhaps stood up to the test of time. I haven't rewatched The Wire. Because I've got The Sopranos on my list of things to watch again. Are you saying The Sopranos hasn't stood up to the test of time, or The Wire hasn't stood up to the test of time? I don't think The Sopranos is as good as I remember it, but I think it's because it was very early in the field of that sort of thing. But it is wonderful. I mean, there are creations in it, Paulie Knuckles, uh, Livia, Tony Soprano's mother, yes. who is this creature from hell, who's just amazing. Uh, Junior, he's wonderful. I mean, it's, it, it is wonderful. But do you know what? I think that box set format now, people have got better and better at it. I've just been watching Narcos, which is one of my, uh, my new favourites. Mm. And it is so, so, so slick and beautifully done, so polished. The shooting is wonderful. I know. And also the shooting is wonderful. Both elements of the shooting. I love um, Livia Soprano. I, she's very... The, the Sopranos is very good as a um, character guide for people in my life. My mother is a very Livia Soprano uh, type character, and sometimes murderous, she, yeah, murder, <laughs> murderously narcissistic. And sometimes she has her narcissistic tantrums, and I just we have a shorthand with my brothers and my wife when I can just say she's gone full Livia Soprano. She's gone. Oh, really? It's very useful. It's good. It's a very useful yeah. shorthand. Um, yes, the wire very very good indeed. And in fact, one of the actors mentioned on this uh, on Amazon here is Dominic West. This was his sort of. I mean, people will rage at me saying he was famous before but this was the beginning of him wasn't it really he came to read the lesson at our carol service in my last church and um, I told him that I'd given the wire box set to the vicar as a Christmas present (laughs) and he was genuinely very chuffed indeed to hear that (laughs) that the clergy of Knightsbridge and the clergy of Knightsbridge were all watching the wire and does he read beautifully yes he did but they always do actors Mm. sometimes what you want you want someone who reads beautifully. You don't want someone who's acting. The best reader of lessons was Judy Dench. I remember doing um, a funeral and Judy Dench did the reading and she was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Oh, really? What is it? Because they, 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 they just bring it down a bit. They just make it more spare. I think if you're an actor, particularly one who's trained in the classical 
Shakespearean tradition. You just know how to deliver a word. Mm. And it's not about, you know, it's not about emoting. It's they have confidence in the language to do all the heavy lifting, really. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Dominic West didn't do it in the Baltimore accent. That's Now, I remember once having one. We had um, a lady did, um, it was a, it was the reading of John the Baptist and Advent Carol service. A voice crying in the wilderness, <laughs> prepare the way of the Lord. You think it's really not, it's not a play script. Oh, it's scripture, it's different. Cringe, that's so cringe. There happen at, um, I've been to lots of actors' weddings and you get lots of drama school students doing the, doing the speeches and really seeing it as a monologue, seeing it as an audition. And you, I'm practically prolapsing with cringe while they're doing it. It's the worst. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a professional with scripture, as I am, you learn that you need to be clear, and what you don't need to do is to interpolate your own kind of emotional um, index to it, because actually it's a bit dangerous to do that, because the Bible, the words are extraordinarily significant, and the impact they can have and have had and continue to have is extraordinary, so you need to be really careful handling it. Do you still have moments when you're reading things you've read hundreds of times before where it strikes you anew? Oh, yeah, constantly. And also, I think partly it's age. So at the moment, it's music. So um, I'm playing a bit of piano music at the moment, which I used to play when I was a teenager, when I was actually, as a as a, as a a player, at my, probably at my best. Mm. But like so many of the things you love in your teenagehood, I sort of went off them as a repudiation of the things of use. And now I'm nearly 60, I'm coming back to them. And it's like hearing them for the first first time I think oh my god this is absolutely wonderful and I do it with novels too I mean I loved the novels of Thomas Hardy when I was a teenager and then I I kind of thought I thought they were too overwrought and well all sorts of things and then I started rereading them again recently and they're wonderful yes yeah it's always good to do that it's it's useful for me as someone who's got a terrible short-term memory I can just come back to a novel that I read a year ago and go oh this is great yeah no I mean I do it with crime novels all the time and I've read (laughs) most of the Jack Reacher books about six times (laughs) and it's usually the seventh time when I think this is a bit familiar (laughs) that's so true that's so true and no criticism of Lee Child but they are no, I love them. Similar, similar. You know, they follow a similar pattern, which is why we love them, because they are and, and also, genius. And they're genius, and the genius is to kind of, you race through it, but I don't think it necessarily imprints deeply on your memory. They're wonderful books, the, the Lee Child books. I'm obsessed with them. And you see people like A.C. Grayling and all sorts quoting on them, saying these are fabulous. I've got a controversial theory that Jack Reacher is gay. Yes, I could I could run with that. I mean, there's he's so gay, and also... He has a fondness for quite camp things. There's quite often there's mention of a credenza. And I didn't know what a credenza was, so I phoned a friend in America and she said it's a kind of fussy side table. And I'm thinking, why would Reacher want a fussy side table? And also why would he know it was called a credenza? So I've, you know, I've tried to share this view on social media and it was a bit like saying James Bond's gay and it didn't go down great. Oh, well, James Bond, totally gay. He's, he's, he's so broadcasting his heterosexuality, he has to be gay. He's protesting is, way too much. Well, I mean, there is something, isn't there, about that, which is, uh, which does sort of beg a question, but then, I don't know, perhaps it's the Johnny Wilkinson factor, perhaps it's his, his charm is, uh, rather skews my judgment. Well, there's that thing about Jack Reacher, isn't there? Uh, women, uh, men want to be him. Women want to be with him. That's yeah, and I think quite a lot of men actually want to be with him too. Yeah. Maybe. Oh yeah, um, I think I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Let's move on before I make any uh, more admissions on the show today. Um, so, uh, 2016, Reverend Coles. Uh, there's a couple of things in 2016 which I'm fascinated by. Um, first of all, this looks. I've never seen one of these before. This is a premium stainless steel egg topper. Oh yes. What is that? Like, I don't know what that is. I've never seen one of these in my life. Am I stupid? It is. The most useless kitchen gadget mm. I've got. It's not useless. It's, in fact, extremely good at the one thing it does, which is take the top off an egg, leaving a very, very straight line. Oh, so like a cigar cutter, but for eggs. Well, it's even better than that because it works through impact. You, It's spring-loaded, and you pull up the little plunger <laughs> thing, and then you release it, and it strikes the egg, which is held by the, the little kind of... Um, it looks like the sort of cap you have on an electric chair, I'm on thought. Yes. But what that does, it means it cleanly takes off the top, the crown of the egg. And I got it because um, I love cooking. And I went through a period when I was being taught fancy things by a wonderful chef who was lovely. And he, he showed me, you know, if you want a high-end an egg, mm. 
you need to get that crown off cleanly. And so I bought the stainless steel egg topper. <laughs> um, it was quite expensive, as I recall. Oh, really? I, I can't see how much it is on here. That's annoying. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry about that. But listen, it's okay, it ain't peanuts. Well, um, yes. and, it, and I've used it. I've used it very occasionally to take the crown off an egg cleanly. And whenever I do, and I serve whatever's coming, people go. Surgeon's hands, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vicar's heart, surgeon's hands. Um, it's uh, it looks like a torture device, it absolutely looks like a torture device. But I mean, you could, I wonder if you put it on someone's big toe and just pinged it up and down really hard, mm. it might. I mean, I'm sure there are more efficient ways of getting information out of someone who doesn't want to give it, but yeah, you could give it a go. You could definitely torture someone with it. Um, also, it does mean I sort of I like the image of you doing it because you're in a rush first thing on a Sunday morning before you have to get to church. I, I think that's rather you know an efficient uh, sort of thing to be doing. Uh, but but then I'm sad because you're missing out on the great joy of a boiled egg, which is the, the getting the teaspoon and tapping all the way around it. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Uh, it's untidy. Yes. You get bits of shell everywhere. Yes. And also there's that bit where you're left with the membrane. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I know, seriously, Tom, try the stainless steel egg topper. Okay. Ask someone to give it to you for Christmas or birthday. Yeah. And uh, people will look at you with new respect. I need it. I've needed that for a while. To be honest, that might do the job. Uh, okay, all right, fine, all right. Egg topper, it's on my list. Um, elsewhere in 2016, 25th of November 2016, uh, you've just bought a lovely clog. It's a love. It's a delightful Joseph Siebel Men's Max clogs. Excellent reviews. Nearly, nearly five stars out of 758 reviews on here. Yeah, I mean they are absolutely, and it's a trick I learned from the monks. Actually, quite a lot of the monks would wear these clogs under their cassocks, so they're smart black leather. So they look like you're making a Sunday best. Yes. But they are actually clogs, so you can slide them on and off. Yes. They're very comfortable, but they have the kind of sole you need, particularly as a man of my age, where fallen arches is a daily worry. Oh, yeah. Um, and I highly recommend The problem is they are irresistible to sausage dogs, <laughs> and they have chewed through, I should think, a dozen pairs. Oh, isn't it worth buying a sacrificial pair for the dogs? Well, I'm actually wearing a pair of sandals that were. They just. I think it's my feet. What they really like is, you know, the um, foot sweat impregnating um, a, an organic material like leather. They oh. can't resist it. It's catnip to them. It so really is, yeah. isn't it? Human yeah. human fluid sponge. That's just all they want, isn't it? Dogs. It's, they do. They really they do. Are the Which worst. is worst. They're disgusting. They are absolutely disgusting, particularly when. You know, they come, they come at it fresh from a stool of some unknown animal that they've been sniffing around in the back garden. I have, Usually a badger. Don't go there. It's, it's well, the, the problem I have, well, I have a, a very beautiful but very elderly Labradoodle who oh. has an enormous beard, full full sort of Brian Blessed type thing. Yeah, yeah. She likes to snack on um, feces in the park that's been left by humans. Yeah. Oh God. And so Again, it's it's and so she'll get this sort of uh, almost a just a sort of shitty brush dangling from her mouth, and she'll come home, and you'll think, oh, she's so lovely, and you'll give her a little kiss, and it's. Uh, I know exactly. I've had the same oh, issue, and you yeah. think there is. I so want that not to be what I suspect it is. But <laughs> it is. Yes. Yes. It's very hard to bounce back on your relationship with a dog. There are certain things, aren't there, which you simply just—they're so awful you have to edit them out of life. Yes, they never—they never happened, and that would be one of the things that never happened. Yes, it's just a stark reminder that they're, blood, they're bloody animals. <laughs> they really are just animals. I'll tell you another one like that, Tom. It happened to me only on Saturday. I was going into London on the train, and uh, I went to the loo and I pressed the button, and the door very slowly slid open to reveal an old lady <gasps> having going about her oh. number two business, oh. and. <laughs> I, she looked at me just with horror. I looked at her and I turned my back and gallantly stood there with my back to her to give her a degree of much privacy as I could and pressed the button to go back again uh, and to put the door back. And then, of course, when we got off the train at St Pancras, um, there she was again and there I was again, but we looked at each other and I knew that we had both officially decided that that never happened. It, just, it hasn't happened. And you definitely haven't uh, made it eternal by putting it on this podcast. That's definitely not happened. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. That's a, this is a hypothetical scenario. It, right, okay. And in this hypothetical scenario, did the door go very slowly in a sort of showbiz, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be? You know yeah, I mean? oh. but it was inexorable. So I obviously <laughs> yes, I hit every yes, button yes. to attempt to get the bloody thing to close. <laughs> 
but it didn't close. And apparently this happens all the time. A friend of mine is a, is a, a train manager, and she said that it just happens four or five times on every trip because people don't understand the locking system no. where you don't actually have a latch that you can lock. And I think this tells us something, doesn't it, about the failures of automation and technology is that sometimes what you want is to draw a bolt. You know? mm, mm. Not everything can be digital. Please don't digitise our locks. Also, can, can we spare a thought for the lady going for a poo and then seeing <laughs> Reverend Richard Culls appearing as if, as if in a vision? <laughs> Were you? I mean, t- was, please tell me you were in full robes at this point. I wasn't in a dog collar, which perhaps mitigated slightly. Of course, I was wearing a mask, so ah, right. my identity was obscure. Perhaps she can't mistake me for Zorro. I don't know. Hello, it's Mr. P here. And the other Mr. P. And we are the hosts of Two Mr. P's in a Podcast. The educational podcast where you don't actually learn a thing. No, instead we explore the weird, wonderful and downright hilarious things that happen in school from people actually doing the job. We reminisce on our own time at school, funny things we experience each day. And of course, we share your hilarious stories from the chalk face. So if you work in a school or just want a nostalgic trip down memory lane, sit up straight, fingers on lips, and get ready for the lesson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's keep things toilety for a while, shall we? And we'll talk about this, Richard, which I'm fascinated to see on your Amazon purchase history. It is, it's the Sunani. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, S-U-N-A-N-Y. Maybe it's Sunani, but I think it's Sunani. It's the female urination device. This is a, a female uh, silicon funnel, essentially, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. It's a she-wee. A she-wee, thank you. Yeah, right, a she-wee. Right. Okay, okay. Well, I got it for my friend Louise March, mm-hmm. um, who is a garden designer in Buckinghamshire. And she is of a certain age now. And like many women of a certain age, issues around, you know that thing when you're young, all you want to do is get your body fluids out. And when you're old, all you want to do is keep them in. <laughs> and, um, and nature conspires against that sometimes. So she would often complain that life for her is getting a bit leaky. Yeah. And so I thought I would give her a shiwi as a present. So Because if we're caught short as men, it's an easy operation, isn't it? It's harder for women because of mm. um, genital equipment. Mm, mm. Um, and what the shiwi does is kind of, I hesitate to say a strap-on, but you know what it's I mean? It's got that element to it, yes, it's absolutely. Got, it a provides a woman with a device yeah. mm. to mm. wee more like a man, if you read. So I thought this was a magnificent present, and I sent it to her. Yeah. For, I think it was for her 50th birthday. Um, and um, I'm sure she was delighted, although I don't remember her actually thanking me for it. <laughs> Or ever speaking to you again. Yeah, Louise March is her name. Louise March of Woburn Green, Buckinghamshire. Full postcode. Go and see. If you see someone in a garden using the ladies' pee funnel right now. So, all right, so that was a present. Okay, okay. It does seem like a, you know, it, it does seem like invention, innovation, giving evolution a helping hand there. It seems very unfair. Certainly my experience at festivals, for example, it's awful oh, yeah. when men, it's yeah. just so easy. Well, just, just, I just think it is an outrage that you know, in a time when we're supposed to have understood something about sexual equality, that women have to queue around the block to have a pee, whereas we're in and out. Mm. And I've always thought, why don't you just double the size of women's facilities and half the size of ours and it would sort of be more even obviously inconveniencing oneself but i think in the interest of fairness yes it would be good but there's this new they're developing this new kind of 
we think women i saw it on the internet the other day and it's like a sort of carousel with little wheel edges on um so you could get many more women in there's not the it's not like going into a little box and closing the door and and sitting there. Oh, my brother did the other day. We were in Scotland right. and we were in a restaurant in an old lighthouse at the Mull of Galloway. Oh, lovely. And um, yeah, and my brother decided he went for a pee. And we found that he'd actually fallen asleep <laughs> in the lavatory during lunch. He'd gone to the loo just for a pee, but he'd had a little sit down. And he said, Well, I'll just close my eyes. And he'd fallen asleep that on the loo fantastic. in the restaurant. We had to bang on the door to get him to wake up to come for his pudding. My God, talk about falling asleep at the wheel. Yeah. What was he having a sit down with? Must have been. I think he just thought he does like to, he, does, he does like a nap, and I think he just thought maybe I was droning on too much at lunch. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that was the thing. But he did just have a little sit down. I and fell find a power nap the most curative thing in the world. Oh God, I don't. Are, re- are you not a power napper? The world is divided. This is the new Brexit. I at twenty minutes, and I am. I am absolutely done because I get up very early for breakfast radio a lot and I feel awful and then I have a power nap and I'm absolutely fine. When do you have your power nap, Tom? Uh, usually I'm an 11 or 12-er, but then sometimes I'm too hungry before lunch. So then what I'll do is knowingly stock up on carbs over lunch. Oh, that'll knock you out. And then knock me out for just 20 minutes. But it will literally be just 20 minutes. Yeah, well, this is the other thing. I, I, talking of uh, Lee Child, this is a Jack Reacher type skill. I can lie down, look at my clock. Oh. At, at, yeah, th- it, it can be... 20 to 2, and I could have Richard Coles on at 2 o'clock, and I will fall asleep, and I'll be wide awake at 2 o'clock. I just, I would do anything, because I'm the worst sleeper. Me and David Baddiel, actually, are rival kings of the insomnia land. Oh, no. That's awful. So I'm lucky. I sleep about 20 minutes a night. Well, no, I don't really, but I'm a terrible sleeper. Mm. And the thing is... As I've got older, and especially with that using a carb method, I get I will knock myself out. Sometimes I will simply fall asleep. Usually watching something on television that I really want to see. Yes. I fall asleep. And then um I wake up, but I feel worse than I did before. Oh, this is no, the thing. The power nap for me makes yeah. me feel like I've got a hangover. Yes, yeah, I, that's awful. That that's that's unfair. That's the, the the worst thing about insomnia, and it's not the worst thing, of course, but the and it's a similar thing to hay fever. So, someone will always present you with a cure to it. Oh, everyone! Yeah, I mean, my brother and my sister-in-law gave me a weighted blanket. Uh, well, yes. Funny enough, when we were in Scotland, and I felt that I was just sort of being kind of tied to a bed in a psychiatric hospital <laughs> underneath it, and the dogs didn't like it either. And they were determined that this would make me sleep better, but I don't think it did. Oh, I like the gravity blanket. I find it very comforting. I liked it. Do you? Yeah, very. Is it like, is it like an embrace or something? Yes, yes. I probably I don't think I was loved enough as a baby, and I think this is definitely there's something Freudian about it for sure. Swaddle they me. Gave, Swaddle they me. gave me one. Yeah, they I gave see. me one, and I, I might just try it again. I think not should, in this weather, though. Well, no, no, for goodness' sake, not in this weather. Um, <laughs> very briefly on the falling asleep whilst weeing, I honked and honked at that image. However, it's occurred to me that uh, several occasions we have a tiny ensuite bathroom, and I, I'm not going to lie to you, Richard. I like a sit down wee. I think that's... Do you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, this is the thing that really divides the world. Oh, oh, totally have a sit-down wee. Why stand up and spray wee everywhere and leave the toilet seat up? And you can sit down, get some, get the phone out, get some quality uh, time away from the children. And But here's the thing. There's an ensuite by our bedroom, which I use, and there's a towel rail with towels on it right in front of the toilet. So I can lean my head forward almost as if in prayer, <sighs> pop my head on the thing, and I have fallen asleep in the middle of the night whilst... Yeah. Uh, whilst waiting. it's very nice, very comforting. I wonder if narcolepsy is only a step away. Oh, that's a good point. But I do think also, I mean, I think I don't have children, and I've just noticed with friends of mine who do, is that once they've had started having children, the, the idea of sleeping for more than two minutes at a time is you know, gone forever. Yes. Unless, unless you do and neglect them horribly, and they lie in urine crying all night. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, yes, but there's still you get good sleep, so priorities. <laughs> All right, come on, let's move on then, shall we? See what else uh, is lying in wait for us on the Reverend Richard Coles's Amazon purchase history. And this is an image which I'm going to take away from the show. It's a petrol chainsaw it's a 58 cc it's a full-on texas chainsaw massacre type scenario um is, is this yours have you 
I, I bought it for David, my late partner, as a birthday present because he really wanted one. I'm a terrible present buyer, Tom. And the year before, I'd given him a leaf bag from the garden centre, <laughs> which was £7.99. And he was so hurt and so angry. I thought, I've got to do better. So he wanted a chainsaw. Yeah. So I bought him a chainsaw for his birthday. And uh, he loved a, loved a new toy. And uh, so he started playing with it, whereupon our neighbour, Ned, in the old vicarage, came literally running. He's a big chap, Ned, very big and um, healthy American fellow. And he grew up in the woods of New England, and he rushed and he went, stop! Because apparently chainsaws are quite dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> that's not true. Oh, that's health and, and safety know, gone mad. Help, exactly, oh, snowflakes. Please. Um, so Ned then stopped. The next thing I knew, David was sort of wearing a chainmail pinny and so much protective equipment, he looked like he was Mad Max ice hockey player. <laughs> and Ned was giving him a masterclass in how to, how to use a chainsaw. But did you have anything to cut down? Yeah, a few things. We're quite. Um, David is a very, very keen gardener, and he would sometimes get kind of structural. And so we've got lots of trees and stuff. And he would, um, he did like to, he liked to interact very positively with the natural environment. Yes. Okay. I, I that reminds me of um, my grandmother. She passed away uh, very, very young, actually, and she was uh, many years ago now. But she was a huge gardener and no one else in the family really was and I always remember that as a kid I was only six or seven and the comfort I got from sitting even that at that age I was really receptive to it from seeing grand things growing around the garden yeah was a strong one you do, do you have that now well it's wonderful because I mean I, I, David he did I'm just looking at it now the garden is absolutely beautiful yeah. and um it's like I get a bunch of flowers from him every day at this time of year because things you know that he planted come up and I find that very comforting actually and delightful and um i sort of sometimes take little bunches of things that he particularly liked to put on his grave mm. um he's very keen on yellow roses we have a beautiful uh, yellow rose called lark ascending which was a piece of music he particularly loved so i was out there with the gardener mr perkins this morning to get some lark ascending to put on david's grave and uh, mr perkins told me how much he he liked the lark ascending too, and that he was out in his van six o'clock in the morning, and he had lark ascending in the backed plant somewhere, and uh, he stopped for a cup of tea, and uh, he put on a lark ascending. Put on the radio, mm. lark ascending came on. At that moment, a lark flew up from the field into the sky, and he looked at that, and thought it was beautiful, and then he said, a sparrowhawk came out of nowhere, <laughs> and there was just a flurry of feathers. And I thought, that's fucking life for you, isn't it? I love Mr. Perkins. Oh, that's great. That's great. I was about to say this is some sort of charming sign of, of you know, ethereal angels setting something up for him. Yeah. It's nature red in tooth and claw, isn't it? <laughs> Bloody sparrowhawks. Bloody sparrowhawks. I mean, a lark. <laughs> Oh, good, good. I always like a story that ends in a terrible, terrible murder. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, what else have we got here? A uh, little bit of uh, Powell and Pressburger. So three Powell and Pressburger films, A Matter of Life and Death, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, and I Know Where I'm Going, all from 1946, these ones. So this is a nice or box. Or thereabouts. Yeah. 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 I mean, I love Powell and Pressburger, who does, and I think if you're interested in... It's the very thing. I'm, I'm very interested in English art and culture because I think it manages to tell us something about England and invite us into an exploration of England without doing it in a way which is horribly, horridly political. So there is a story, a national story, a national culture that we're all um, stakeholders in. I'm sorry to use that word, but it just came into my mind. No, it works, it works. And, and, uh, and I think Powell and Pressburger are very interesting also because so many of the people who've most captivated us with that articulation, that image of Englishness, aren't English. Hmm. Pressburger being one of them, John Betjeman, Dutch heritage, Elgar, um, Holst, yeah. uh, Guillaume de Sens, who built um, Canterbury Cathedral. You know, all these people who give us these visions of Englandness aren't actually English. Richard Curtis, I mean, he's, who in our own age has probably done that better than anybody else, but Richard is actually Czech by birth. I didn't know that. Is he really? Yeah, and he grew up in uh, in New Zealand, and he has an Australian passport. Oh. His father's Czech. Well, Boris Johnson's got an American passport. Well, he was he was an American citizen, although I think he renounced his American citizenship oh. um, because he didn't want to get taxed by the IRS. Well, who can blame him? <laughs> it's true, though. It's true. What is it... 
I think you need to be an outsider to give yes. the inside of you. You know, I think those of us who live in it are born in it. And you well, think- you're a Welshman. It's an interesting one for you. I mean, you're you're an outsider to that too, in a way. Well, in a way, but then I'm in the most English part of Wales, Monmouthshire. I'm in this sort of no man's land where you can be both English and Welsh, and you don't really get. And also, there's a middle class thing as well. I mean, this is a big tangent for me, but there's a there. there is, I feel like as a Welshman, there isn't a an accepted. Welsh identity of being above working class. Whereas in Scotland, you'll get posh Scots, you know, that kind of posh Scot thing. You'll get a known stereotype. But in Wales, it's, if you're not working class, you're almost not Welsh. So I've always had that's this... really interesting. It's I suppose strange. that's because, yeah, because we think of farmers in the Slean Peninsula and then the cities of the South. That's it. We? That's it. Yeah. And it's patronising to the working classes. It's patronising to Wales. And it annoys but also, it, this is something really important because you've got the history of Wales, particularly, I mean, think of people like Vaughan or the Herberts. They were people who were absolute, or the Tudors, yeah. you know, preeminently, Welsh families who were hugely significant on a, you know, a national and international stage. Mm. And now it's Bonnie Tyler, which is great, don't get me wrong. No. But, um, but, um, but she's probably never going to run the country. Wouldn't no. it be great if she did? I'd be, I'd be fully up for that. Fully up for that. She's an absolute legend. Um Yes. All right. Good. Uh, Powell and Pressburger films. I'm, I'm a big fan of war movies. They're tremendously comforting. I used to watch them with my father. It's just yeah. But, I mean, the interesting thing about Powell and Pressburger is that they have this deeply mystical tinge to them, and the films are they're like a sort of Narnia for grown-ups. I think mm. because they imagine a version of what we know in this sort of supernatural but very compelling way. Supernatural, but actually, that tells you stuff you really need to know about. The natural. It, I love them. I love them. Just, there, there are supernatural twists in these films, and I didn't realise that. Oh, gosh, yeah. Ah, I mean, okay. are... I'm listening to any of these movies, I should say. I'm a complete ignorant. Oh, listen, yeah. Tom. Well, just, just what? I mean, I start with The Master of Life and Death, because mm. that is a war film. Um, but they're all wonderful. But and my favourite one now is I Know Where I'm Going, but it's a very strange little beast. Mm. Didn't know that. Okay, good. Thank you. Will do. Good. Lots of recommendations coming from the show today. I'm going to have beautiful eggs. And, you know, a good collection of old films. Um, talking of old things, uh, New Testament Greek manuscripts, uh, £45 pounds on these. Well, it's technical stuff, isn't it? The stuff you need for work. I yes. mean, my academic field is New Testament textual criticism, which means that, I mean, it's different now because of the internet, everything sooner or later will be accessible that way. In fact, it is. <clears throat> but my bookshelves, I'm looking at my bookshelves in my study now, are crammed with books like that, which are... The reason they're 45 quid is because literally there are four people who are going to buy it. So they need to should price it accordingly. Right. Um, so there's me and the three people who work in my field right. who buy that book. <laughs> I think the one I bought that was just the Epistle to the Romans, I think. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and so this is something you did when you were studying, or do you still go, go to these now? I keep my hand in it now, yeah, actually. I mean, I did... Um, so I haven't been a generalist all my life. When I went when I was in the monastery, I thought what I'd really like to do is kind of concentrate on one thing. Yeah. And I've always really loved New Testament Greek, and uh, and I got really interested in the. So my field is textual transmission. So it's it's not interpreting what's written in it. It's interpreting how it reached its written form. So it's looking at the history of how the text we have today got to us and that's incredibly complicated you're looking at the best part of 2000 years of stuff and it's one of those things where it's highly technical Mm. and highly focused but it'll tell you everything you need to know about everything if you give it your attention and do you need to go through layer by is this something that's been retranslated again and again and again and hence a sort of chinese whispers thing happens yes but it's more different editions so there are Different sort of families of texts. I mean, people argue about, argue about everything, but there are a certain set of texts that are associated with Alexandria uh, in the sort of second, third century. A certain set of texts associated with Gaul in France for a bit later, and then there's the Byzantine text. So there's text families, if you like, and all of them differ very, very slightly. Sometimes it's literally a letter or a word. Why? But oceans of ink have been have been um, expended on working out. Well, that means that it's important because you know the Bible has shaped and continues to shape so many people's lives yeah. that sometimes an awful lot can hang on a single stroke of a pen. Well, this is the thing, my friend. So my friend Tim was telling me he's Catholic. He's very, very up on his his faith, and the the, the quote, and I'm going to completely mangle it now. Um, lying with another man is a sin and he said that the original word was shame is a shame not a sin and it's this kind of interpretation which is yeah. fascinating <clears throat> fascinating that people have yeah, and also with. there's the the word which um sort of conservative interpreters of scripture would take to mean someone like me a gay man mm. um in the 
the usage of its time meant something different. It would have been a temple prostitute. And one of the things we do, and it's something we need to be very alert for, is that we don't read into ancient texts a script of our own of our own age. You know, and you have to, you know, the Bible's important. We have it our best reading, and that means sensitive and thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you what else uh, you owe yourself is your best uh, possible food options, and you've really gone for that here with uh, this... Yeah. <laughs> some caviar some atlas caviar 250 grams currently unavailable so you obviously uh, have emptied uh, russia i assume of caviar here yeah this is very controversial out on because um it is not obtained in a way which is consistent with the highest animal welfare standards Oops. although there are now um uh, caviar farmed caviar which is um obtained much more humanely but i'm afraid i do have a terrible fondness for caviar which is the most moorish thing in the world i think after crack cocaine <laughs> um and uh it's a bit dearer than crack cocaine though but um, i do i do absolutely love it and i have a very rich friend who sometimes takes me out for dinner yeah. and um she's extraordinarily generous and lovely and um she takes me to this place where they they had a caviar trolley. Oh, wow. She said, let's do caviar. And I'm like, wonderful. So I looked at the caviar menu, and it was surprisingly reasonably priced. I said, that's really surprising. Well, give give us an example. Give us a number here. Come on. Well, I'll get to it. Okay. But it, it but it was it was modestly priced. I'm not going to say it's not it's not chicken McNuggets, right? Sure, but sure. it was modestly priced. So anyway, the caviar trolley came out. I thought, well, we'll have some of that. So I had some beluga, had some ossietra, had some savruga, had some Cornish caviar, mountains of it, all served up beautifully with bellini, yeah. chopped egg, all the kind of stuff you have with it. And it was wonderful. And then at the end, I realised that the price in the menu was per gram. <gasps> And and she, without wincing, and she didn't show me the bill, but I kind of stole a look at it while she went to the loo. And it was £800 oh, just for the caviar. Wow. Yeah. Mind it's you, bad, isn't it? if anyone's been to the pick and mix at the Odin Cinema... You can easily hit 800 quid there. Easily. You? That is yeah. easily done. Easily done. <laughs> wow, okay. Mountains and mountains of caviar. It does look good. I mean, it's just, it's fish eggs, isn't it, caviar? It's fish eggs, but it's the eggs of the sturgeon, which is a very noble fish indeed. And there is, I actually, I genuinely really, really love it. But so in the end, we just used to have it on Christmas Day because it is ridiculously expensive. So uh, I would shop around finding um, the most modestly and approachably priced caviar before Christmas. Is there a Waitrose Waitrose Essential caviar? Does that exist? I think Waitrose, I don't know, it's a special order, I think. And now the other thing about it is made even more expensive. I mean, when I was in Russia at the end of the Soviet Union uh, in 1990, you could get 500 grams of beluga for 25 US. Wow. And that's really where I acquired the taste for caviar. Yes. And Russians love a party. So caviar, Georgian champagne, and very, very plain white Russian unsalted butter oh. is how you would do it. And it was wonderful. Yes. Well, um, once you've had something at a certain price point, though, it's hard to accept yeah, change. Yeah, you're not going to get 500 grams of beluga <laughs> for, I mean, it's gone up more than a thousand times in price. Oh. So it's a luxury I can no longer afford. Of course, a bit of a rarity me and David, because David didn't like it as much as me. And so sometimes I would sneak into the fridge and help myself to more caviar than was my fair share. And he used to go mental and you don't even like it. You're like, I kind of like it. You don't like it as much as me, which means I should be entitled to have at least 75% of the caviar. We never resolve that one. I hope you send up an apology every time you gorge on caviar now. Do you know, I can't remember the last time I did gorge on caviar because I've not been able to, been able to be taken out to dinner by my rich friend because there's been nowhere open. But I'll mm. drop some heavy hints. Yes, yes. I, d- I definitely think that's one of the one of the most serious complaints about the pandemic thus far. <laughs> it's been very hard it's like, for me. It's not just a first world problem. It's <laughs> no, like a one percent first world problem. But you know, seriously, the reason why the price has soared is because there are so many Russians now in in London who yes. are extraordinarily rich and will pay anything for things they desire those sort of trappings of wealth because many russians lived for a very long time uh, without access to the trappings of wealth yeah. until they go a bit mad well, why is there a big russian community in london are they, are they uh, exiles tax oh tax, yeah, oh, tax. Right. i mean there, there are various reasons it is if you're an extraordinary and i know this because my previous parish was knightsbridge which is probably must be either the richest or second richest neighborhood in london and there were quite a lot of russian very wealthy Russians who lived there, who did partly because they 
found it expedient not to live within the jurisdiction of President Putin for one reason or another. Yeah. Partly because there are um, tax reasons why uh, you might want to shelter colossal wealth in the UK. Partly because of housing, because um, there was so much growth in London housing mm. values. And partly because it's a, you know they like London. It's a fun place to be. And so they would, um, we would often run into them. They would sometimes have, I remember doing a wedding, it was a Russian wedding, and the bride's dress was £50,000. And I remember it cost £12,000 to dry clean it. Wow. £100,000 off flowers, oh, I think. Wow. I mean, it was, and also because, again, it's, um, it's to do with Russian culture, I don't want to, um, dealing caricature, but you often felt that there was a sort of competitive wedding giving between the various oligarchs, so they would would go for bigger and better than their rivals. And, yes. uh, you, t- you could just have great fun as an observer of that, like a tennis umpire just watching it. It was slightly disgusting there, Tom, after a while, when you just looked at yeah. the amount of money that went, you know, people are free to spend their money within the law how they want, mm. but there is something that's a little bit disgusting. About our, you know, the night time after church, I was filled with homeless people who had nothing yeah. and whose lives were very tough and hard. And by daytime, um, you know, it was full of people who were so rich they never, not earning money wasn't the problem, spending money was the problem. Mm. How the hell am I going to spend all this money? And would you ever feel it in your job remit to approach the, the oligarch getting their, you know, their daughter getting married with you and, and talk about the charitable giving that your church was oh, trying yeah. to do? Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, yes, that was that's your job. What's the point of being a Christian in the richest neighbourhood in, in London? Uh, well, the point is you build relationships with people who have surplus wealth and find out ways in which they could use that to... You know, provide a public benefit, yeah. and um, and they're different. The, the Russians were interesting. They were very generous, but they needed to have their name on something. So if you could say, well, it'd be great if you gave that, and it could be the you know Igor Bolokov um, Center for you know whatever, then they would be enormously generous. And you learn to ask the right amount because you know normally if you're a vicar you're thinking, maybe I can get 50 quid off this person. I see, yes. Whereas if it's an oligarch, you're thinking, maybe I can get 500,000 quid off this person. That's what you have to do, right? You have to pitch it, because if you go in too low, they're offended by how low it is, right? Yeah, and uh, and people can be surprisingly, extraordinarily generous, Mm. and we're off of that. Mm. Um, uh, Okay. It's good, it's good. Right, we're getting towards the end of the episode, Richard. I've really enjoyed oh, this. It's me too. So much fun um, uh, to find out the truth about you. And it's uh, also another note I need, uh, need to make here is uh, to get an oligarch on the show. Imagine, yeah, get one. imagine that. Um, all right, finally, a final couple of things. Two more things. Uh, we've got uh, Ferrari men's linen hooded robes, uh, ethic kaftan Saudi Arabic dresses, a uh, 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 it's just a summer long shirt, isn't it, according to this? It's a caftan. It's a caftan. I started wearing caftans. I'm wearing one now. It's lovely. Very good for the for the hot weather because you, you can give it a little sort of willow, can't you? You can give it a shake and get some draft moving. And they are incredibly well adapted to hot weather. Also, they make me look a bit less fat, although I have got a sort of muffin top. Well, it's more than a muffin. It's like a bakery, in fact. But, <laughs> it, um, but if I kind of stand in the right angle, the fall of the caftan doesn't kind of get trapped by that. Mm. And I kind of look in the mirror and I think, oh, I'm quite thin today. Well, the um, picture here, the man wearing it here looks very handsome. He's got, yeah, he's got a medallion either. on and everything. No, but I'm imagining... It's a yeah. trick I learned from the great Sir Roy Strong, who I had lunch with in his wonderful house, not far from where you're from, the Lasket in Herefordshire. Oh, yeah. And uh, Roy, in the summer months, would wear nothing but sort of caftans and um, sort of linen shirts and, and trousers from Pakistan and places like that. And I thought, He's so right, and he's always so right. So I took that clothing tip from Sir Roy Strong. I remember Sir Roy Strong. He, is he has he passed away? Is he still? No, he's still okay, with us. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, he used to come and do the speeches at our school, of course, because he was nearby. That makes sense. Oh yeah, well he's he's such a lovely man. Yes, he was and, fantastic. Uh, yes, I've... yeah, he wrote a wonderful memoir. Yes, uh, yes. a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, having lunch there was it's. His garden is breathtakingly beautiful. I'm sorry, but Herefordshire, I would say this because I was born there, the Herefordshire going into Brecon Beacons, that sort of border oh. territory there, it is the most beautiful landscape in this country. It is unreal. Unbelievable. Yeah. I was, um, I mean, I've got a friend of mine who lives near Hay, and oh. uh, he took me for a big walk on Brecon Beacons. His idea of a big walk is SAS big walk. Yes. My idea of a big walk is end of the garden. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but I was just 
absolutely knocked out by how beautiful it was. I remember must be looking at the Usk Valley, or is it the yeah. Wye Valley? One of those valleys. And it was the silver ribbon of the river just unwinding through this exquisite yes, yes. landscape. And you could see from miles. Sugarloaf as well. Did you see Sugarloaf from where you were? Isn't that Rio de Janeiro? <laughs> I would be surprised to see that from <laughs> Pale Wye. It's very high. It's very yeah. We've got our own Sugarloaf there as well. Uh, good. All right. So not so much Vicar in a Tutu as Vicar in a Kaftan there. Yeah. Very nice. And then finally, here we go. This is a nice domestic note to leave you on, Richard. Uh, it's a microfiber scrubber to quote with nail uh you've bought yourself a scrubber it's a window cleaning kit with it it's got a very it's got a good long telescopic handle oh well you need that for your upper stories but i'll tell you why tom because in lockdown when nothing was moving the vicarage windows did begin to look a bit you know unwashed Mm. because they were and it's like cutting a lawn i know we're not meant to do that in no mo may but if you cut the lawn if you clean the windows the benefit is far greater than the effort you expend it just looks great and you feel great i like the world to be orderly and so a cut lawn and a washed window you're laughing and this has all the technology that i need to achieve um you know the effect i'm after so first of all what's no mow may well i can't mow in may in order to encourage wildlife so in our churchyard we've left half of it to nature now and it's causing rather a controversy because we have a beautifully kept churchyard and there's a bit of a division in the community between those who think unmown churchyard uh, is fine and those who want it to look Mm. manicured and so we've compromised and we've done both um but the no, the the wilding bit is beautiful. We've got all sorts of things happening in there. Yes, yeah. yes. Rewilding is great because it's it's obviously very good for the planet, but also it means I don't have to do anything. The trouble is, though, I mean, you think it's enough, isn't it? You think not to mow the lawn, yeah. and you think it's okay. I'm just promoting the environment. I'm actually being a good citizen, but actually, it just looks dreadful. Yes. Yes. Oh, look, there was a good. There was a good tweet from a bird just as you said that. Perfect. Yeah. A bird yeah. in the distance, enjoying, yeah. jumping, around. enjoying. Yeah. Um, uh, and is, has this has this uh, window cleaning device got some sort of hose built into it? Is that how it works? No. I mean, I didn't really want to. It was beyond my budget, so oh. I did one which just had telescopic poles and then a sort of squeegee head thing. So there's quite a bit of, and also one of those things that professional window cleaners use. There's a technique to this, Tom. You know, they're like a windscreen wiper on a stick thing. Yes. Um, and it's just to make sure you don't streak, because oh, streaking mustn't streak. is the bane oh, well, as of a, a vicar as well, Big yeah. trouble if you end up streaking. Mustn't do you it. Remember streaking? That's the thing we were talking about, things that happen when we were kids that don't happen now, and streaking is one of them. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this is what upsets me about when they, they always... The cameras never stay on the streaker. They used to. All the pictures of well, Beefy Botham standing next to that chap. Brilliant. Well, that's an editorial thing. Is oh. It's considered that you don't do that because it just encourages copycats. And it does interrupt play. Do you remember Erica Rowe at Twickenham? Yes. I, I've met her. Did you? Yes. I think she lives in Portugal, yes. though, doesn't she? Yeah. Growing stuff. Yeah, they flew her over for a, a, a hundred greatest sporting moments thing, and I was on after her. And she came out, and I was like, "I'm getting a selfie with you." Was she nice? <laughs> oh, delightful! Ba- sure baffled that this this was still going on all these years later, and then yeah. she was heading straight to the airport to fly back to Portugal. Absolutely spot on. Yeah. But it is one of the enduring images of Britain in the seventies was Erica Rowe, the Twickenham Street. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's incredible, isn't Good it? Good honour. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a better image to define a decade than you know something like Brexit or something like that. It works for yes, or the winter of discontent. Yes. Exactly. exactly. Let's take that away from the 70s. Um, all right, listen, Richard, thank you so, so much for coming on My Mate Bought a Toaster. Pleasure, Tom. I, thank you. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. It's been so lovely. I feel armed with recommendations. Uh, a recommendation which you've been far too modest to mention, which I'm going to do, is uh, The Madness of Grief, your your latest book, which I've, I've started reading and it is absolutely wonderful. Your writing is sensational and I can't wait to read the rest of it. And uh, that's how it now. So there you go. Thank you. Available on Amazon for about 14 quid. <laughs> 14 quid. Stick it on your list. Uh, Richard, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure, Tom. Oh, I love him. It's Richard Coles on my Bought a Toaster. I feel sad that it's over, but I only had an hour with him and I had to stop when I got to 61 minutes because I felt bad for taking a minute extra of his time because he's got to be one of the busiest men in showbiz and godbiz, hasn't he? And that's what I think one of the things we love about him is that you know he's doing so much stuff. Certainly after speaking to him just now, there's so many things going on and yet he seems so placid and calm and centred. What an excellent human and I hope you have enjoyed spending an hour with him as much as I have. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and write a nice review if you get a chance. Uh, If you don't, don't worry, it's all fine. Um, That was quite passag. 
If you don't, don't worry. Yeah, it's fine. No, I understand. You're busy. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, what are you? Are you a vicar and a showbiz superstar? Hmm? And doing panel shows all the time, are you? You're not. So write a nice review. Uh, all right. Slightly barbed ending to the show. Didn't mean to do that at all. Back soon. See you soon. Bye, bye, bye. Oh, hello you. My name's Tom Price. Hello, I'm Dave Cribb. You should come and join us every day. We do a podcast called Cabin Fever, where we talk to loads of comedians who've had to cancel everything else in their lives. So they come on our podcast instead, don't they, Dave? Yeah, it's an isolation podcast. Uh, Dave, were you yawning at the start of that sentence then? Was it just a little yawn? Yeah, it's basically the Great Big Owl isolation podcast. We'll have people on from all our podcasts, from your Rule of Threes, your Brian and Rogers, your musicals, your bitchins. If you like any of our podcasts, if you like any of those people, chances are they'll be logging onto the Zoom call and just chatting because, let's face it, they got nothing else to do. Also, there'll be a quiz on the bill. All right, see you soon. Lots of love. Cabin F-E-A-3709. Oh, 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 that's our Twitter name. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.